When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the final word. I'm Adam Collins. Jeff Lemons down the other end of the line, still in hotel quarantine. This is the season finale of Series 8 of The Final Word. So Season 8, Episode 30, of course, being a weekly podcast, it means nothing at all because next week will be Season 9, Episode 1. But still, it is worth noting as we start the show. Hello, Jeff. It's the way that seasons go. Uh, The Australian season will begin proper when the Australian women's team takes on New Zealand on this coming Saturday, even though the season in England won't have finished because of all of the delays and so on. So there'll still be the England Women's Series going on over there with the West Indies. But I suppose that being Australians, we will uh, cleave to that particular season as being the start of a new one. Um, and it will be our ninth our ninth season. The X-Files got nine seasons. Things won't go on so well by season nine. Um, I'll tell you what, Chris Carter was absolutely making it up as he went along. No idea what he was doing. He's like, ah, the cigarette smoking man is hiding out in uh, an Apache reservation in a cave. I don't know. Like there were helicopters. It was it was a lot going on. But our season nine is going to be much more. I know the reason you know that because a couple of years ago you went back and watched X Files from start to finish. I remember when you were doing it. I don't know which tour we were on, but you were committing uh, to the cause. And Mm. I I remember the very last episode of X Files is when they brought everyone back, wasn't it? It was like a best of season finale where Mulder was on trial for murder or something like that and they had to go back and effectively <laughs> prove they were right all along to get him off the hook. Was that right? Have I, I got that I, I I recall that actually, right? I've got to confess I didn't make it that far. I reckon I watched the first <laughs> three seasons maybe because I, I, I sort of, it was when it was still mostly Monster of the Week and you know that, mm, that was, mm. those were the goods. Um, but the, the thing that stood out the most from watching those early couple of seasons is Mulder and Scully are 
they're little babies. They're so young. They're little kids. Mm. You're like, oh, look at your smushy cheeks. Oh, you're going to go out and fight a monster, are you? are going to go find the squeezy man who goes under the door. Oh, don't get your knees dirty. You know, like they're just they're, they're little kids. It's bizarre. And they had some amazing arcs. So if I recall correctly, Scully gets abducted at the end of season one. Have I got that right? When she's taken away by the end aliens. Of, end of two, I reckon. End of two. And then there's the end of four where they kill Mulder's dad. Maybe it is one. And yeah. there's the whole Area yeah. 51 subplot um, where Mulder's dad gets wrapped up in it. And that's peak X-Files. That's before the film. I think mm. most X-Files nuts would suggest that when they made that film in 1997 or 98 or whatever it is, it all went downhill yeah. after that. I, I still got a yeah. degree of lingering resentment towards, I think my parents elected to go themselves and not take me to see that film, despite the fact that I fucking mm. loved the X-Files at the time. But, you know, this isn't therapy. This is the final word. And we have on the show today... I should say before we get too deep into this uh, digression, Alison Mitchell. Yeah, I could go on. <laughs> we could go on. I mean, we might go on. But we'll get in and say, Ali Mitchell, who we've talked about getting on the final word for like three years. We finally found time in the biosecure bubble in Manchester last week to spend about an hour and a half or so picking her brain about her trailblazing and remarkable career as a cricket commentator and broadcaster and her broader sports journalism remit as well. A fantastic company, a, a marvellous uh, contribution that she continues to make both on radio and television and everything else that she does so we'll come to that in a sec it'll mean that we won't spend too much time talking off the top although we will get into a little bit of IPL you mentioned Jeff before that the women's internationals have at long last started it was a good stat off the top that Charles Dagnall had last night on Skype 200 days elapsed between England being defeated via washout if you like in that T20 World Cup semi-final at the SCG and them taking the field last night against the West Indies I mean just Mm. hearing that number draws into stark focus how long they've had to wait while the England men have played well, six test matches, uh, I don't know, maybe a dozen white ball games. They're gearing up. Uh, well, some of them are playing IPL. They're gearing up for another white ball tour of South Africa mm. after the IPL, and then they'll probably go to Sri Lanka in the winter, and who knows what will happen with the Indian series. But it just reinforced how long the women have had to wait, and they played really well last night in a fairly clinical victory over the West Indies. And spare a thought for the Indian women's team who played in the final of that tournament and have just been left hanging ever since. They've yeah. had you know, any cricket they were going to play has been cancelled. They've got nothing concrete on the horizon. There's sort of theoretically going to be this little, you know, mini tournament, this women's IPL challenge. But, you know, that's a, a couple of days and it's over in terms of the international team playing. They they haven't trained together and they don't know what they're training for and the, the World Cup next year has been postponed. And it's like, it's just kind of, oh, well. Men's cricket, that's what matters for yeah. the BCCI. And I, and I thought it was quite positive that Heather Knight was strident in her commentary around this uh, with respect to the World Cup being cancelled and the schedule this year and, and all the rest, pretty much making the point that don't turn a blind eye to us. Uh, don't forget the broader contribution that sort of we've been making to the cricket. I don't know, I don't want to say content offering, but uh, you know, when you're talking about media jargon and filling airtime and so on. And I love the fact that Sky, it's, I put this into the Guardian Life blog, it's something that costs nothing but means plenty, I think anyway. Uh, when the women's game last night was starting, there was about maybe eight overs to go in the IPL game and they moved the IPL game to the secondary channel and moved the women onto the main channel. Now it means nothing because if you've got the secondary channel you've got the main channel. It's, it's a moot point as to mm. what station you watch it on. But it just kind of was symbolic that we are prioritising the England women's national team. They're going on the main Sky Cricket channel uh, and, and we're going to show them live as planned rather than sort of knocking them to the secondary channel and prioritising yeah. the men's game from India. Again, cost nothing, but, but kind of reinforce that commitment that Sky have been making over a number of years. 
yeah, in practical terms, I know that some people who follow the show uh, make this argument a lot that in practical terms it doesn't matter, secondary, primary channels, whatever, they're all channels, but there is still a there's, – there's a badging issue to it. Yeah. There's a prestige um, kind of association even if it's not a, a practical effect. But there, there's been a bit going on in the IPL, uh, including – Marcus Stoinis tying a game with two of the worst deliveries you will ever see. Two filthy oh, full tosses with scores level that got slapped straight to the field. I thought it the second absolute- last, I thought I thought the last one which he speared and it like stumped wasn't a bad idea. Given he knew that, I, I, was it Jordan facing the last ball, the second last ball, yeah, it was backing Jordan, away Chris to leg stump. I thought that was a decent option, really. But I mean, the fact that it I was don't Stoinis, think he meant to bowl a shin high full toss. <laughs> I don't think that. But he was, was following him, wasn't he? Wasn't the idea that he was following yeah. him with it after he saw him making room? In, in any case, yeah, maybe, that, maybe the line, maybe the line was a good idea. <laughs> he did not mean to bowl him a shin high full toss. Maybe that was not. not the plan. Maybe not. Gladiators. If Kimberly Joseph after the ball had said, "Marcus Stoinis, you bowled him a shin high full toss. Was that your plan?" He would have said no. <laughs> It was so good watching him bat, though. I mean, obviously, Stoinis' tour of England wasn't what he was hoping for. He played in all of the games, I think. He batted really nicely in the, I think it was the third T20, and then did okay in the second one day, but taken as a whole, not the sort of tour he wanted after getting, at last, a bit of an opportunity. Obviously, that, that first game, uh, which uh, they lost when they were chasing in the T20, coming in at number six, and it, he was kind of the, the scapegoat for that loss. But in any case, goes to the IPL, bashes 50 off 20. Was it 25 off the last over off, off Jordan? Something like that. It was Stoinis at his best, and the huge smile on his face as he walked over to do the mid-innings mm. interview with Simon Zool. And because the crowd noise was so piercingly loud, they couldn't get the connection right and Stoinis couldn't hear a word that Dool was saying just smiling to camera saying he couldn't hear him. They finally asked him a question that he could make out uh, and he proceeded to call Rishab Pant Little Rishab, which I thought was quite cute in a, an affectionate way and signed off when Dool asked him about his arms to say that, well, what else are you going to do in lockdown? Again, with that sort of cheeky grin on his face. So he, he enjoyed uh, being able to come in and, and close it off there for the Delhi Capitals and as you mentioned before, two wickets with his final two balls to take it to a super over, which they which they won an incredibly exciting sort of IPL game that really did have everything you want in the IPL controversy scandal a comeback I mean you know <laughs> say what you will about the IPL you, you can't sort of look away when you're engrossed in a game like that hilarious that this talking point was uh, a short run the umpire called a short mm. run uh, that wasn't actually a short run when there were 10 balls to go they ran two uh, it got called short therefore they only got one run for it and they ended up uh, being losing their last wicket with a tied score and, and went on to lose in the super over. So it, it, hilariously, everybody um, who was following Kings Eleven Punjab or working for them was saying that decision cost us the game because if we'd had that one more run, we would have won. But as we know with timelines, if that decision had been different, everything that followed it would have been different. Uh, maybe the <laughs> thing that cost you the game was losing two wickets from the last two balls to filthy full tosses when the scores were level. You absolute dinks. Maybe if you'd got a single instead of getting two guys out, you would have won the game. Maybe maybe that. If you want to learn more about alternative timelines and you're a relatively new listener to The Final Word, go back to our episode after the Leeds finish last year with the Nathan Lyon mm. 
DRS decision that wasn't because Australia didn't have a review up their sleeve at the time. And Jeff unpacks that very nicely. At some point, um, this will res- this will be a feature of our sliders spin-off when we finish doing the final mm. word and we end up doing an episode-by-episode episode recap of sliders. This will happen. I'm sure that we'll come back to episodes in the show and we'll compare it to what happened at Leeds last year and indeed what happened in the IPL game at Dubai a couple of nights ago. The criticism of the square leg umpire saying that he was out of position, as was pointed out by a number of people on social media, they are told not to stand square on because of the camera's side on these days, as I understand it. They're, they're, they've been coached mm. to stand just a little bit off-centre in order to make so sure... So the that camera can see the... Runner. Yeah, which to me uh, raises a, a, another point. Why aren't the television officials permitted to uh, fix something like that? I mean, it sounds obvious, mm. but and a lot of people, uh, you know, I think Harsha made this observation as well. Why are you relying on someone standing off-centre to adjudicate a short run? seems like we've kind of mm. been on this trajectory with, with no balls of late. Uh, this, this seems like a, a logical place to take it as well. Well, I, I would particularly in this context like to award the very prestigious Seabus Super Performer of the <laughs> Week award to the Kings 11 Punjab CEO Satish Menon, who announced after the game that they were launching and they had launched an appeal against the result to the match referee. We've appealed, he said, while a human error can happen and we understand that there is no room for human errors like these in a world-class <laughs> tournament like the IPL. This one could cost us a playoff berth. So Satish Menon thinks that uh, the short run that was called cost them a playoff berth. No, dinking full tosses straight to the field cost you a playoff berth. Tell, appeal that. Tell your players uh, to, to appeal that one to the match referee and see how far you get. Lovely work. So obviously Kings Eleven Punjab want everything tailored to meet their unique needs just in the way that Seabus Investment <laughs> products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of the building and construction industry. Seabussuper.com.au uh, if you want to check out their superannuation offerings. Uh, remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Very nicely done, Jeff. Very nicely done indeed. Other bits and bobs from the IPL that we should touch on. David Warner ran out at the non-striker's end yesterday. The worst way mm-hmm. to go, of course, uh, um, playing for Sunrisers Hyderabad, who ended up falling well short after losing like eight for 32. We've seen some real swings of momentum in these three games so far. Ravichand with Ashwin, we built up... Oh, speaking of run out at the non-striker's end, Adam. Yes. Uh, close listeners to the show will recall that, that that's how Jody Hicks fell in her top score in the WBBL when, when she made uh, was allowed to bat for pretty much the first time in five yes. years and, and made five runs and was run out at the non-striker's end off a deflection. I'm looking forward to where you she's go been, with this tangent. <laughs> she's been re-signed by the Sixers. I didn't know this until recently. She's going around again. Um, having, having played 19 matches across five seasons, uh, having been allowed to bat three times in those 19 matches and having never been allowed to bowl a delivery in the WBBL, the Sixers have decided she's indispensable to their plans going forward. She's in their squad of 15. This happened a few months ago, but I missed it. Um, it, it was sent, I think Dale sent us a message on the, the patron DMs to, to let us know, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing what happens with the Hicks season this year. Well, if given that we're now entering the, the window of women's cricket, the Rose Bowl starts this week between Australia and New Zealand, which if you're calling for the ABC, and then we've got the WBBL following immediately after that. Surely, if we're ever 
going to be successful in seeking an interview with Jodie Hicks. It's got to be now. So that's our homework. After we finish recording today, we'll put a request into the Sydney Sixers and um, we will finally get to tell the Jodie Hicks story. Or better still, she'll tell her own story to us and hopefully it'll be the start of a more productive time with the bat. By that I mean hopefully she'll get a bloody opportunity after that many thanks for comings. She pays her ball fee, she goes all the way to the game, sits on the sidelines and doesn't get a hit. But... uh, all our positive energy towards uh, Jody Hicks. All our positive energy as well towards Ravi Chandu and Ashwin. We said that running out at the non-strikers then was a feature of Warner's dismissal. That was when a drive was struck back, hit the bowler's fingers, he was run out backing up, which is deeply frustrating for any non-striker, but that happens. But running non-strikers out who are taking an extra foot or so, uh, that won't be happening in the short term because Ashwin hurt his shoulder uh, when diving to stop a ball in his follow-through. Mm. Interestingly, I'm not sure if you saw the delivery in question, but it was one of those where Ashwin really does stop as he's bowling the ball, as if to suggest he was about to flick the bales off. In fact, I was watching it, and I took a big, deep breath, like, he's going to do it, only to bowl the ball and then lose balance and hurt his, I think it was his left shoulder. He Mm. put a tweet up last night saying that it's not as serious as he first thought and the scans have been positive or been better than he thought yep. so hopefully he'll be back sooner rather than later less good news for Mitchell Marsh though who in his first game uh, of the competition has hurt his ankle and he walked out hobbled out to bat at the very end of yesterday's game and well that wasn't good at all so there's some reports saying that his IPL campaign's over I'm not sure if they've been confirmed but I mean talk about bad mm. luck Mitch Marsh seemingly every time he signs a deal somewhere gets hurt twice Surrey and now in the IPL, a competition which he was pretty well placed for after playing so well in that Australian white ball team over the last few weeks. Yeah, it's an expensive injury as well because they're pretty much pro rata, those mm, IPL mm. contracts. So if they decide to replace you out, then then that's pretty much it. You um, you get your check for the two days you've been in camp or whatever yeah, it might be yuck. Um, at some point down the line. So he's um, in some ways had a lot of luck in his career and in some ways has had very little Mitchell Marsh. So sending him the best for his recovery. Uh, Jeff, we said we wouldn't talk too much off the top before getting to Ali Mitchell, which means we should find some time for... Nerd Pledge! Very quickly, Nerd Pledge. Just a couple of Nerd Pledges. It's the game that we play with people on the patron page where they send us a number uh, they send us a number of dollars and cents. They're supporting the show by doing so. But that number also has a cricket correlation and we have to calculate what it is. We will do two numbers just to keep things nice and brief on Nerd Pledge today. The first is coming in from a, a friend of the show. This is Matt Wust under his real name who was previously in our list as you may remember if you've listened back to previous episodes as Fake Patch Clap. <laughs> he was impersonating his friend, the real Patch Clap, who was also on the Nerd Pledge list and much confusion and hijinks ensued, I can tell you. Uh, the, the fake one, Matt, has sent in a number all of his own under his own name, uh, and that number, that first number, is $7.69. Now, this, Adam, I said, look, I'll take this one, you take the other one, mm-hmm. and, and what I've discovered here is is a, a lovely little bit of symmetry here. Seven sixty nine. if I turn that into a bowling analysis of seven four sixty nine, this is... The best bowling figures of two wonderful figures in cricket history. One, Wesley Winfield Hall, and the other, Jack Gregory. Now, Wes Hall was Jim's fav- Jim Maxwell's favourite player. He'll, he'll always talk about Wes Hall, watching him bowl, you know, played in the, the Tide Test in 1961 or 60. 1960, 61. That was 1960, just yeah. before Christmas in 1960. Yeah, close enough, within a few days. It, now... 
Wes Hall uh, played his first – he got these figures in his first home test series. He toured India and Pakistan in the late 50s, took a massive wickets and then against England at home in 1960. We talked last week, I think, about how boring cricket was in the 1960s. This was a five-test series with four draws, um, <laughs> including this one where the Windies were – were close to winning, but they just had a few too many to chase and couldn't. Uh, they weren't bowled out, but they couldn't get to the target in time. But the, the fact that they had a target to go after was due to Wes Hall with his seven for 69, facing up against players like Ken Barrington, Colin Cowdery, Ted Dexter, Peter May. Uh, so that was a draw, but it was Wes Hall's top figures for the rest of his career. And the other one, Jack Gregory played in the 1920s, played under the captaincy of Warwick Armstrong, a.k.a. the big ship, who was a famous figure. That, that was the team that whitewashed England, one of the the few 5-0 results in Ashes history up until the early 2000s when they started coming around more often. Uh, and this was at the MCG in the second test of that series. Now, Jack Gregory took 7 for 69 and made a tonne at about a runner ball, batting at number nine, he used to bat without gloves uh, and he came out no gloves and, and smashed them around. The, the score was pretty modest when he came out to bat and he got Australia up near 500 and then uh, pretty much bowled them out on his own, including many of Adam's favourites, uh, <laughs> Wilfred Rhodes, Jack Hobbs uh, and Johnny Won't Hit Today, JWHT Douglas uh, were among pledge favourites wickets. So there you go. That's seven for 69 for you, Adam. Nice, nice, nice. Seven for 69. The fake patch clap. Thank you, Matt Wust, for that very generous pledge. I've got 233. So we had 223 last week, and of course, 213 is the final word, magical number, but Mm $2.33 from Chris Lawson. It's a number that we've dealt with once before in relation to Rahul Dravid, of course, the double ton uh, that he made at Adelaide in, in 2003 mm-hmm. Kumar Sangakara batted 233 times in Test cricket and averaged 58, oh, yeah. if you don't mind. Bilal Asif, who was our, our man two years ago, would you oh, believe yes. that we were in the, in the UAE nearly two years ago? In fact, I think we might uh, revisit that in a couple of weeks in, in greater depth. But that was his cap number, of course, that fabulous taboo uh, in that oh, Test yes, match, the six which we were... In yeah. the first innings. Yeah, bowled magnificently. Uh, Chris Martin, another one of your faves, Jeff, took 233 test wickets, who now owns a supermarket. You can read a lovely piece that Bharat Sundarason uh, wrote with him for Crick Buzz when India were in New Zealand, I think late last year. But mm. for this particular 233 from Chris Lawson, I'm going to go with a man who we talked about two weeks ago on Storytime, Carl Hooper. A man who I think when you look at it, as a whole, underperformed in his test career. But when he became captain, um, he was leading the West Indies at age 35 in his 93rd test match in April 2002 at his home ground in Georgetown. Uh, and he came in at three for 44 when Brian Lara was dismissed by Javagal Srinath for a duck. So tough times. Shivnaran Chanderpaul joins him at 157 for four. We're still plenty of work to do. But they go on to make 297 together uh, for the fifth wicket. And our man, Carl Hooper goes on to make 233 across 630 minutes, 29 fours, three sixes out of West Indies 501. Dravid, as it happens, made 144 not out in reply, the other man who we could have given this to. But Despite the fact that it was a rain-affected draw, Tony Cozier, the late Tony Cozier, writing for Crick Info, I liked his opening paragraph. Cull Hooper put a lifetime of underachievement finally and firmly behind him, appropriately on the ground he has always called his own. 
So it ended up being the highest score for a West Indian at the ground. Cozier went on to say he left to a standing ovation from fans who had waited 15 years for an exhibition such as this. It was far, far better late than never. In the end, Hooper finished on 102 test matches late in 2002, so later on in that year. Uh, But he was never better than those two days on his home ground in Georgetown. 233, Chris Lawson, thank you. And if not for that double hundred, you wouldn't have had the quiz question that you had a couple of weeks ago about uh, which player had made a test double century, 100 catches in each form, etc., etc. I can't remember (laughs) all the details. But that double hundred was the key point in that particular stumper. Indeed it was. So we'll be back with more Nerd Pledge on Storytime on the weekend, which we're having such a lot of fun making. If you're not listening to Storytime, we do sort of more like five or six Nerd Pledge stories, then we go on to revisit some numbers that we might have got wrong. We deal with some fun correspondence. It's been an absolute hoot uh, since we've been doing it in a more dedicated way. We usually um, return to an interview that we've done in previous seasons of The Final Web, which people have been enjoying. We had Matt Renshaw's interview from about April or May 2019 that we rebooted on last weekend's show. So stick with us on the weekends if you want to be involved with story time as well i've mentioned on there that we are looking for a commercial partner a sponsor if that's your bag if you want to get involved with the final word in a formal sort of partnership that weekend show is crying out for your patronage so uh, send us a message on our final word cricket at gmail.com email address or on patreon if you're already one of our um, subscribers there and we'll be happy to have a conversation about that and if you want to send in a nerd pledge you just go to patreon.com slash the final word Uh, Sign up there. You can select your number and see if you can fool us in the weeks to come. Okay, Jeff, enough from us. A quick breather, and when we're back, we'll have with us Alison Mitchell. Jeff, since we last talked, uh, it's been confirmed indeed by the Prime Minister today over here that we're going into a version of lockdown again. Nothing like it was in April and May and June. Well, I hope anyway. But nonetheless, things are going to change over here and it may want to make you head for the hills and get out of town and throw yourself under a rock. And if you're going to do that, you've got to take some precautions. You've got to take with you a satellite phone. How do we do that? We do it with a Zolio. A Zolio, a Zolio, feeling hot, hot, hot. Yeah, you want, you want something that means you can be in contact with people when you're in the middle of nowhere. So you might you might want to, you know, go up into the, the, the Shetland Islands or the, you know, the, <laughs> do they have mountains in Scotland? Probably kind of mountains, they have hills anyway. Uh, or maybe you're not in the UK, maybe you're in a country where you can still travel around uh, and you you want to be away from civilization. And, and that's a smart thing to do if you can, if, if it's safe, if you can get there. But you also want people to know if you're in trouble you want to have the means to transmit communication to people and this is a thing that you can do with a magic little box it's called a zolio it's like the size of a pack of smokes and what it does is it connects to your regular phone and turns it into a satellite enabled device which means that it, you can send messages it's text-based so it's you can message to a, a phone number or an email address anywhere on the planet from anywhere on the planet which is pretty remarkable when you look at it doesn't matter where you are you can be at the north pole you can be in the siberian tundra you can be outside king's cross station you can be anywhere in in the wilds where normal phone communications don't work and you can message people and it also has an inbuilt sos beacon that if you hit that it will send your exact GPS location to your predetermined emergency contacts so that if you get in trouble, 
You don't need to type out a message. You don't need to try to type, help, I am hanging on to the edge of a cliff, you know, with one hand while you're hanging on to the edge of a cliff. You just hit the big red button and off it goes. Uh, and, and that means that you can then get rescued, you know, depending where you are. That may be at your own expense. I'm not necessarily saying the rescue is, is included, but the <laughs> means to call the rescue team <laughs> is included. Uh, and this is a thing that you can get. It's pretty cheap. It's pretty attainable. They'll send it to you in the mail, this magic box, and then you will be able to communicate with people all over the world. I hope when you hit that button, that just sings out. So when you're near me, darling, can't you hear me? SOS. The love you gave me, <laughs> nothing else can save me. SOS. I was also thinking about Zolio. How often do you get a phone bill when you're traveling around the world where they've stung you when your phone just happens to be on when you're in the wrong country it happens in europe quite a bit where you might be flying over from one place to another and it taps into the 4g or 3g network and you're done over well this gets you out of that you don't want to be in the hands of conventional phone providers who from personal experience will will bleed you at every opportunity this provides a nice little backup option to make sure that when you are out of range that it's not going to pick up some obscure network and do you over. Mm -hmm. You'll be on the Zolio network and it won't preclude you from talking to the people you need to talk to, even if you are trying to put, put some distance between yourself and the real world as we enter this next strange version of uh, coronavirus lockdown in some parts of the world. At least you'll be able to hold on to this. It's a great investment. That is one of the things it can do. There are many others. The website is zolio.com. Z-O-L-E-O. It's easy to find. Uh, pop it into a search engine and discover the power of worldwide messaging connectivity. Hi, I'm Natalie Jamanis and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. This is The Final Word podcast, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and we are doing our first in-person interview since March seven months ago or something like that since the pandemic took hold. That was when, Jeff, you spoke to Dr. Peter Bruckner when we were uh, just at the very start of the pandemic. But in, uh, well, we're both in hotel rooms. Uh, you're in Brisbane, as we've discussed on the show already. And I am in Manchester with our great friend and colleague, Alison Mitchell. Hello, Ali. Hi. <laughs> this has been like a long time in the waiting, I feel. It, it uh, really has. Final word. It really has. I mean, I think we first started talking about doing this with you maybe three years ago, but due to circumstances <laughs> and the fact that you are uh, the hardest working woman in show business, being able to spend time to do this properly, I'm glad we found the time now that we're on what we're calling these dark days. So It's taken a bubble to it's taken, to a, it's taken a pandemic to make yeah. it work. But no, like that's what we're doing now. So to put it into context, you're working here on the BBC TV coverage of the One Day series. Of course, you've been uh, working on radio and TV throughout the summer. But you have been in these bubbles for the better part of three months. How do you feel knowing that in a couple of days it's more or less over? I know the women's series in Derbyshire mm. will require a different kind of version of the bubble, but as far as this very full-on experience in Manchester and Southampton, it's nearly over for you. Yeah, I'm actually going to miss it, weirdly, mm. because strangely the way well the way things are going now in, in the UK we're starting to get lockdown measures you know tightened again in terms of mm. you know group meetups and and it's more sociable actually to be in the bubble than out you know if you're <laughs> someone that lives lives on their own as, as I do you know there's very little social life going on you know back home at the moment so actually within the bubble you know you wake up you can see people at breakfast every morning you then you're working together during the day or you're able to you know sort of socialize socially distance and, and so on because we're all having to still observe that in the bubble of course but yeah, there's, there's actually more life in the bubble than, than potentially out. And then presumably, well, for both of you, if, if you're going to be involved in the Australian cricket season this 
upcoming Australian summer, if you're able to even get in, given that there are queues and restrictions and limits and, and so on, then you'll end up... I'll be waving my Aussie passport, yeah, Jeff. But, but I mean, <laughs> if, even if you got one, you're still, you know, there, oh, yeah. there's still a, a shit fight to get into the country. And then you'll have to be doing what I'm doing, which is be locked on your own in a hotel room for a couple of weeks after your <laughs> several months of being in hotels in England. It'll be do the same again in Australia. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm a bit sort of... It's just mind over matter, really, isn't it? We're already watching people quarantine at the IPL mm. and, yeah, I, I don't really know what it will be like, you know, if that happens. And I've never certainly done, you know, 14 days is quite extensive. But, mm. no, I think, yeah, I think if, you, if you're going somewhere for a reason and you've got something to look forward to and you know why you are quarantining, then, I don't know, yeah, you're, you're a better place to tell me, Jeff, as to how you, how you deal with it. I'm quite enjoying it, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have to go anywhere <laughs> or do anything, which is, you know, usually the bane of my life is... It's like actually having to yeah. leave bed um, and now there's no reason to do it. So Quite reflective yeah, time. It's, it's probably not great for people who have that inclination to be antisocial to begin with, but um, it's, it's, an, it's an indulgent pleasure at this point. Yeah, it's interesting how I think at the start of this process had you said that we would be at different points of our lives being locked in hotel rooms or whatever it is, we would have been quite averse to that. But the experience in reality has at different moments in time been comforting and reassuring and something about like connecting with the people you're closest to shutting out peripheral noise i mean again i'm not saying it's been a good thing overall but it hasn't been completely without its um without its upsides yeah I, i've just noticed people dealing with it in different ways like people who are either natural extroverts or, or introverts might might cope with it differently i think we've all had little ups and downs whether it was during the full-on lockdown in the uk yeah. or whether it's been actually in the bubble and again different people different circumstances and probably you know, tougher for those who actually are locked down only a 10 minute drive away from their own home because you know mentally physically mm. you haven't actually gone very far <laughs> you're only down the road and your family are just up the road and yeah. yet you can't see them yeah. so it's all sort of degrees of you know we're all used to packing up and you know in cricket we're used to going away for two months at a time and even traveling mm. to places where your movements are a bit more restricted you know either because of security reasons or or whatever it might be so i think we're as as sort of human sports broadcasters and 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 the teams as well better place to deal with it than some of the sports who aren't used to being away for long periods so if you're talking about homes away from home and you mentioned the Australian passport that you've got people listening to you broadcast wouldn't necessarily assume an Australian link you're, you're a very properly spoken uh, English voice and yet you, you, <laughs> oh, you, my mum and dad would be proud you do have you do have this link uh, to Australia as well on the sly uh, tell us about that what is it spill the beans yeah, I've never tried to hide it. I just want to be clear about that. <laughs> Depends on that. the context. Sometimes <laughs> no. it's wise. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, my mum is an Adelaide girl. So my mum was yeah, born and brought up in Adelaide. Uh, my dad is English. Uh, mum grew up in Al near Alberton. Mm -hmm. So there's a poor, poor Adelaide connection there. Um, she came travelling around Europe in the 70s as a sol solo girl, which I think was also a bit sort of kick-ass, you know, that that time of yeah. of life. Packed up a rucksack with her best friend and went travelling. How did she fit her best friend in the rucksack? <laughs> she folded up very neatly. Um, they they winded up in a pub in Cambridgeshire, like a, a live-in sort of bar, bar job. And um, literally, my mum met my dad in the pub uh, one night, and a romance ensued. And and mum had to send a telegram, I oh, think, God. you know, back to Australia because you know phone calls were really expensive back then. And um, I think then the next communication my mum had with her mum, my gran, 
was to say that um, you know I've, I've met this Englishman and I don't think I'll ever be coming back to live in Australia again. You know, this is our plan. So they they flew back to Adelaide and got married um, in Adelaide, honeymooned in Victor Harbour. And again, my dad didn't have any of you know, his own relatives um, in Australia when, when he got married, lobbed up. But fortunately, they had this thing called cricket, which my dad found as a real common bond uh, because he was a huge yeah, cricket fan and club cricketer. And uh, that, was, that was the thing that really helped him to bond and gel with my mum's side of the family in Australia. And so a beautiful union was formed. Yeah, and so uh, a couple of themes that run from that that go through your life today. One is that you've got that strong Australian connection and spent a lot of time in Australia as a kid uh, and a lot of interest in cricket, but also having grown up in North Hampton, uh, you've been back and forth a lot between the two countries pretty much throughout your life. Yeah, and I feel really lucky for that. I think mum clearly struck a deal with dad. Say, look, if you're going to take me back to this cold, grey country <laughs> called England to, to settle and live, then, you know, I've got to make sure that we come back to see my family regularly. And um, yeah, dad managed to wangle a business trip every other year, <laughs> around about Christmas time. <laughs> and um, yeah, we'd managed to sort of get yeah, myself and my brother and, and, and mum on board the plane and, um, and off we'd go to Australia. And so we, I spent my, yeah, a really happy childhood you know, having these alternate Christmases, one in England, one in Australia, one in England, one in Australia. And there's some of the happiest times lobbing up in Adelaide and spending, you know, a lot, it was a big family over there. Lots and lots of cousins, lots and lots of second cousins. And I think, you know, when you spend really, really quality time with each other at a young age, you just become great, great friends. Mm. And those relationships have just been so sort of central to my being thing and have been so influential on me all the times we've spent yeah, in Oz all those Christmases. Um, I feel massively, massively grateful for that. And, and again, yeah, sport and cricket and sunshine, it was, it was really central to our visits, whether it was being taken down to the Adelaide Oval, whether it was playing cricket in Benitham Park, whether it was cricket on Grange Beach, whether it was, you know, switching on, you know, my aunt's headlights on the car in the street, you know, a bit like Neighbours of the Cul-de-Sac, and then we <laughs> yeah. played day-night cricket on the road. <laughs> so, you know, all of, all of that. One of the things I enjoyed about working in cricket was how, over time, was letting go of parochialism and not, not, not supporting a team particularly anymore and I found I was able to enjoy the game much more in all of its aspects when you know when I could start enjoying players from other teams and, and things like that if you're growing up with that sort of divided loyalty as it were are you able to be uh, less parochial or, or does it sort of make you double down on one side or the other I think when, when I was young there was definitely a sense of and I'm talking about like you know sort of in the late 80s when you know England were, were were dominant sort of for a while and then obviously Australia started to be massively dominant and yeah mum would be obviously supporting Australia in the ashes and dad would be supporting England and of course my brother would side with my dad and so as the you know the daughter you would want to side with your mum just to support your mum <laughs> right so um, I think as I yeah, as you grow up, you said you become a you become a journalist of the game. You become an, um, an observer of the game, and I think sort of whichever I don't know, it's strange way when England do play Australia, I think you just you just enjoy it for the individuals that are playing in a way, and mm. you enjoy everybody's success rather than sort of really rooting for a particular team. I suppose you're always a little bit conscious of uh, maybe which broadcaster you're working with and which who your audience is, but you just gain a certain sort of a detachment you still you've got a vested interest in sort of wanting 
either team and both teams to do well but you just enjoy the sporting contest mm. yeah i can identify with that a lot obviously living here being australian being a proud australian being but being a, a londoner essentially mm. in terms of the way i lead, lead my life day to day i don't sort of see myself as you know uh, often you can play up to that stereotype and you can dial it up but i also think that it's actually far more gratifying dialing it down and being seen as someone who's an impartial observer rather than an australian parochial drum beater yeah. uh, when on air it, it can be tough to balance it out i think but yeah you, you're in a similar boat i suppose whereby when you are on an australian broadcast i mean it doesn't really matter that you speak with an english accent yeah and some of my most exciting sporting moments and contests and and indeed in cricket have been when england have lost yeah you know one of my favorite memories was tendulka at the chennai test match in uh, 2008 just after the mumbai terror attacks had happened and the boundary he hit to both win the match and bring up his 100 in the wake of those attacks. And he dedicated the win to uh, Mumbaikers. And it was, you know, it was an England defeat, but the moment was glorious. And I, I think that's the point that you, that you get to, that you, you're just appreciating the story. You know, as a journalist, you're, just, you're a fan of a good story. And you're allowed to still be the sports fan when you're away from the microphone. Yeah. And yeah, shout and barrack and... And, and get into it because that's why you, you love sport for the contest but actually when you're behind the microphone your duty is to convey the story convey the excitement for whoever might be listening because you will have England fans you'll have Indian fans you'll have neutrals as well and it's just a exciting moment and a thrilling story and, and, and a, a, it's the emotional connection isn't it and I think even no matter which side you're supporting you can still feel the emotion in sports whether it's your side who's won or lost. Absolutely. Uh, Ali, just to go back to that idea of cricket being a strong theme and Australia being a strong theme, you go to university to study geography, not journalism, but you still find a way to link it back to cricket, which gives you a bit of a, a toehold ultimately in the game. It gives you your initial pivot point into the media. Mm. Well, I, I did geography because I realised it would get me into journalism. <laughs> See, I found that there was this side of geography called cultural geography, which you can basically make it apply to anything in the world. <laughs> And I've done a bit of reading about um, media and sports and society sort of all blended into this thing called cultural geography. So right. I was a girl with a plan and I figured if <laughs> I did geography, which I enjoyed and, you know, was good at it. And geography just teaches you about the world, actually. And just as a curious person, you, you know, somebody who has a sense of curiosity about the world and the planet that we live in, geography sort of satisfied that and gave just gives you a really broad education, actually. I'm a bit of a geek about sort of flying the flag for geography but mm. if I wanted to go into news journalism then geography would have been a brilliant grounding because you sort of learn a little bit about everything mm. which is basically mm. what we do as journalists we you sort of be, have to be a mini expert in whatever subject you're you're covering same with this sport same with news and geography was perfect for that but yeah it enabled me to do my dissertation on the link and relationship between cricket and television uh, at the time and then yeah, use that to then apply to a postgrad diploma in broadcast journalism, which is then that specific sort of vocational nine-month course in training you in the skills of news writing, in editorial judgment, in media law, in public admin, in how to report the courts. But I did that knowing that I ultimately wanted to come out and do sports at the other end, of course. So does the interest in, in geography, do you think that's linked at all to being uh, having a, a transnational childhood where you you're traveling across the world you've got you're traveling to the other side of the world on a regular basis you're going across such a large expanse of space and that maybe that makes you think 
it, it gives you the concept that there is an entire world out there and that it's not just the the tiny bit of it that you happen to live in in the shops and the school and the park and you know the places that you spend all of your time because you're flying over it you're looking out the window and you know I, mm. I still find that magical when, when you know not that I've been on a, a flight for a while now but the way that that happens where you look out the window and go well I don't even know which bit of the world I'm over and you try to work it out and you think oh is it it's maybe northern Iran or it's or it's Kazakhstan <laughs> or something as you're coming from Australia to the UK you're going over places that you might never have visited and might never visit but there's it's all out there like the whole thing is out there does that did that open up that idea for you that there was so much more out there to discover? Yeah, I, I think you, there might be something in that. I don't think I've ever really analysed why geography because geography is way more than than place, space and, and maps. That's the other thing. I mean, we did environmental geography, we did socio-economic geography, mm. we studied the, the economy of Europe, which, you know, becomes a lot more relevant now than, mm. you know, it, it was then. So we studied the, the rise of China as a power. We looked at Russia. It was... Yeah, economic, social, cultural, as well as the sort of physical geography that you associate with school yeah. and maps and rivers and mountains and capital cities and everything. But yeah, I, you're right. I, looking out of the aeroplane window, there's something sort of deeply romantic and mystical about looking down on mountaintops and not knowing where in the world you are and then seeing an amazing delta from 30,000 feet up. Um, but the other thing which does sort of have a bit of a thread through my childhood was that my dad travelled a lot through work. So he would, I mean, only go away. I think the longest trip he would do was three weeks, which felt like forever to me as a child, which is why when, you know, I know how long the cricketers spend away, you know, I have a, a huge empathy for the amount of time that they're away because I do remember how long three weeks felt when my dad, and that was probably only once a year he would do that kind of length of trip. But he had work colleagues in, um, he would travel to Seoul, Korea, um, America, Italian, German and a lot of those colleagues would actually come if they were over in the UK dad would often host them to dinner at our house so yeah from a child I was exposed to quite a lot of international visitors from all different parts of the world and and I did find that fascinating and learning learning snippets of their language as well because they would often come and teach us how to count to 10 as kids and um, you know bring bring gifts with them there was a degree of international exposure and I think you're right that probably did pique a sort of interest in yeah there's a, a huge international world out there. I want to bring you forward to 2001 I know you've written about 2001 recently and how it was such an exciting summer for you having just finished your tertiary studies your vocational education in, in broadcast journalism and suddenly you are basically working for Richie Benno. <laughs> <laughs> uh, talk us through 2001 with respect to that incredible job but also what you're able to do at Wisdom Cricket Monthly and kind of yeah finding your feet in this big bad world of ours in the cricket media yeah it was the first year i suppose of getting my toe in the the industry really so channel four cricket was produced by sunset and vine and mm. gary francis i'd interviewed him as part of my dissertation at university so hence geography cricket and television and uh, off the back of me sending gary my dissertation yeah, he invited me to come and be a runner for them that season and it was uh, the west indies um had just been the summer before that was their big caribbean summer of cricket and i'd sort of studied that and so now it was the ashes. And I mean, this really was, I was, I was so excited. I, I couldn't tell you. It was, it was television. It was media. It was test cricket. You know, I'd sat in the stands and watched on the television for so long. And now here I was going to be actually involved in it from the inside. And I remember the day I got my accreditation through. And, oh, my God, I 
accessible areas. <laughs> like this is, I mean, you would have felt the same as well. First yeah, time you yeah. get your first, you know, international media pass. But yeah, the job as runner is pretty much do whatever anyone asks of you. So primarily, the job was get up at, be at the ground at six in the morning, get the commentary box all set up, glasses on the, you know, glasses and water. Get the morning's papers, lay them out for the commentators. Richie would always have to have a separate little card table in the corner, so he always had somewhere to sit with his laptop and work, and he'd always have a copy of the Racing Post. And, um, yeah, and when play was going on, I was running, literally running, they call you a runner, just have a headset on, and I would be taking bottles of water and lunches around to the cameraman, all their different positions around the ground as well. And, um, yeah, you were just on hand to fetch and carry and run errands and really keeping everyone fed and watered. But it was an amazing grounding because I, when I wasn't running around fetching bottles of water and everything, it was an opportunity to sit and listen and absorb from inside the commentary box and watch how all these guys went about their business. Um, it, and, and just be part of an incredible team, actually. We had a lot of fun that summer as well behind the mic. And so a great way just to, just to make friends and get known, get yourself known, be known, get a bit of an insight into how it all operates. It's hard to explain how that feels, I think, when you're, when you're, you're inside the commentary box for the first time, you know, just loitering up the back, but you're hearing the production, you know, the thing that you've been listening to for your whole life up to that point, and then suddenly you're in the room with it, you know, suddenly it's real, it's not at the other end of the line, you know, these are the voices you've been listening to. It's, it's, I still kind of, I can still feel the thrill of that initially, and I still get that thrill sometimes. Yeah, and I really love the chance of actually being in the, the, the scanner, so the truck where the director is sitting and seeing all those banks of screens and getting the feed in my ear and seeing how a tv broadcast is actually put mm. together and it's an um, it's an amazing monologue of the director just calling ready one one camera two two three mm. get ready to wipe c wipe c go replay and it's just this monologue that you realize is in the commentator's right. ear constantly throughout the day um, and it's such a skill realizing all the different parts of television what an enormous production it is and compared to radio where you know as you guys know you can set yourself up you know, stick a mic out the window even for some sound effects and you're broadcasting <laughs> to the world and television is is a team effort in a in a whole wider more massive scale so it was fascinating to be able to listen to that. It's, it's like an abstract creative thing that the the director speaking purely by speaking is making is bringing into being this broadcast you know by saying the name of the thing it comes to exist so there it, it's like that's the the paintbrush is just the voice is the director reading off all of the screens and working out what needs to come in next it's, it's quite a remarkable artistic form in a way yeah and then the canvas is then the television screen that the the pictures are on and then the commentator in in television is then augmenting those pictures they're um, the unseen part of the canvas but without the words the canvas is only part of the story a big part of the story but not all of mm. it and the words can give the context that the canvas can't show visually. That's really nicely put. Uh, you mentioned sort of uh, microphones hanging out the window. After you have that initial burst of energy in 2001 with this incredible team, high-profile stage, you then go and 
to the old school, old fashioned, almost apprenticeship by being a county reporter for the BBC. You get a job at the BBC conventionally through an interview, having done work experience there. But then you are, you know, it's 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 going to the shires. It's being there week in, week out. And it's broadcasting county cricket, writing about county cricket, and it obviously gave you a wonderful foundation in in being involved in the sport week in, week out. Yeah, I was quite fortunate actually that the staff job that I applied for at the BBC, having done you know freelance work at Radio Northampton and Radio Leicester, once I'd qualified as a journo and um, was yeah with the BBC Asian Network who were a brand new digital station and they had some money to spend and they were happy to spend it on sport and cricket was their number one sport for the Asian community mm-hmm. so one of my first cricket reporting jobs having reported at Radio Cornwall during my course doing the um, Screwfix Juice and Premier League <laughs> um, that might be the football league I can't remember whether that was cricket or not um, but that was reporting at Lords on the 2003 test between England and South Africa. Yeah, that was the big sort of foot in the door in terms of being on on the ground at the scene with the test match special box a few doors down and sort of feeling suddenly part of the, the wider BBC cricket machine. Mm-hmm. And the Asian network then afforded uh, me an opportunity, again, I guess sort of right place, right time. I'd already been doing county reporting and for Five Live during the summer, um, and funnily enough, before coming on here, it did make me actually just flick back to some of my audio archives I've got on my laptop. And I found that I, I'd forgotten that I'd commentated on Shane Warne's first ever first class hundred. Oh, was that or the, his first class hundred? That's amazing. Hampshire. Yeah, 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 well, yeah. He made a couple, didn't he, that yeah. season before the 05 Ashes, after the 99 yeah. at Perth in exactly. a test match. He, he makes one at Southgate. This at, was at Canterbury. Canterbury, yeah. right, yes. Yeah. yes. And in fact, amazing. in the commentary, I say his previous best was 99. But I mean, again, you can just hear this sort of young commentary voice that sounds, I think, quite different. All right, Ali, I'm going to say now. we're going to drop that audio. We're going oh, to drop that don't. piece of commentary <laughs> in right here. He goes for a cut shot, he runs through for a single and that's Shane Warne's century, punches the air, his first ever first class century. Ellie, you talked about the machine of the BBC. I think it's 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 easy as an Australian not to understand the scale of the BBC. You know, we have the ABC, we think of them as equivalents, but you get over to England and realise it is, they're not even on the same scale like this it's an enormous operation it's got so much going on like how how do you begin to negotiate your way through that labyrinth uh, to to emerge with a career at the other end well sh- shall i give you an example which might il- illustrate i suppose the size of the bbc for for those who aren't familiar just an example of how I spent a lot of years working before I was doing, and even after I'd started doing ball by ball commentary, I'd do a lot of England tours as the Radio 5 Live reporter. Mm-hmm. And I suppose 5 Live would be the equivalent, well, sort of ABC News Network radio. So rolling news and sport, all, all speech. And the role as a 5 Live reporter is to sit on the microphone all day. And essentially your role for 5 Live is to do, they have a news bulletin at the top and bottom of the hour. So the top of the hour, so it's 1pm. And they cross to you for a quick 10 seconds on the update of the match you're watching. Yep. So you do that. And then again, at quarter past every 15 minutes, you give them a live update round the clock all day. Plus when a wicket falls, you buzz in and then you mm-hmm. give a quick report on the wicket. But that's only one BBC network. So when you're on tour and you are the one man BBC band, TMS are doing their commentary thing. You're servicing the rest of the BBC radio <laughs> network. So 1pm is your five live updates. If a better example would be breakfast, 8am, five live updates, 815, five live updates, 
8.20, the cue in your ed- headphone changes and you can suddenly hear Radio 4, the Today programme, the flagship <laughs> news show. So then 8.25, you're doing a longer, either a 45-second update or a two-way into the Today programme, uh-huh. which is similar style, maybe a little slower, a little bit more considered, but that's your Radio 4 Today. Then the cue changes in your ear again and you're listening to the BBC World Service. And then a presenter crosses to you for another commitment, which again might be different. They might say, oh, we actually need a minute from you. So you change your style again. Then a little bit later on, your cue changes and it's Radio 1 breakfast bulletin. And they want 10 to 15 seconds in a punchy, <laughs> yeah. highbrow, you know, over a music bed. So you change your style again. And then 8.30, oh, you're suddenly back to Five Live and it's your 30 second standard sort of into the news bulletin. Jesus. And then at quarter to the hour, it might be Radio 2 breakfast. And they want, again, a nice jaunty chat for about two to three minutes with the presenter who might be Chris mm-hmm. Evans and the sports presenter. And so I've, I found it massively stimulating to have to adjust your style, your pace of delivery, even your choice of vocabulary and words to suit the different audiences, which might change every five to ten minutes. But you're sort of broadcasting is constantly around the clock at certain times of the day when demand is highest. And, so that, and that's, only, that's only the major network radio stations. If you chuck into that, the times when, and I did this a bit during the 09 Ashes, you'd be what they call the regional reporter, and you'd spend a couple of hours doing a regional sweep. So any local BBC radio station can request a two-way from mm. you, and you literally get a timetable. So you just sit on the microphone, and it'd be like, right, 10 past 10 is Radio Northampton, 20 past is Radio Leicester, half past is BBC WM in Birmingham, <laughs> And you literally do round-the-clock reports. Just dropping in a bit of local colour for each one. and you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, well, you do, because if it's WM, they want to specifically know how Chris Wokes is going because right, he's the Warwickshire yeah, yeah. player. So, again, you're editorialising each update yep. to suit the audience and the station that you're serving. So there's a lot to think about. And, I've, yeah, I've, I always, always enjoyed the sort of stimulation of thinking, right, how am I going to tailor this report? Who am I... Who am I delivering it to? What do they want? And it opened up these opportunities through Five Live to be an integral member of the 2005 Ashes team. And you get that opportunity to be sitting pitch side for that final test match at the Oval, which will you know, go down in history as one of the most remarkable weeks really in test match history for the way that it all came to a head and there you are not just sort of a county reporter or or a runner as you had been in the previous Ashes cycle four years earlier but you're in the thick of it on the pitch side as the Ashes are being won for England for the first time in what was it 16 years mm. yeah literally sitting on the grass with my back against the advertising hoarding sort of cross-legged with a you know, radio mic in my hand, largely looking between Justin Langer's legs because he was often fielding on the boundary right in front <laughs> of me so my view would sort of just be between his legs out to the middle but yeah that was immense and then afterwards just as much fun was being in Trafalgar Square for the victory parade afterwards and I was sort of perched on a on the the plinth of Nelson's column with a you know the old satellite dishes would you ever come across an M4 sat these are before you know we didn't you think about now you just head out with your you know with your iPhone and hook up and do something remotely but we had to cart these satellite dishes around in 2005 (laughs) and they were heavy things 
and there was me, there was a guy from the British Forces Broadcasting Service, I remember, and we'd both sort of nabbed this position so we could see above the head of this thronging crowd who were dancing in the fountains across to the stage where the double-decker buses were about to roll in, and Five Live was just bouncing around all of us. I think, you know, Jonathan Agnew was, Agus was on, on the bus, one of the open-top buses. Yeah. <laughs> um, although I think he had tech problems that day, <laughs> if I remember rightly. And then I was on the plinth, we had another presenter who was sort of in a cafe nearby, and people were hanging out windows, they're dancing in the mountains england women were on their bus as well mm-hmm. um oh, just a crazy crazy day you know we've, we've we've never seen scenes like that you know no matter the the ashes wins and even the world cup wins since because that 05 series as we know was was across all free to air television and, and had an audience the likes of which hasn't been repeated quite since and your career's got serious momentum now as far as what you're doing inside the bbc you're starting to attend all these global events and so on one of which is the 50 over men's world cup of 2007 where you were on commentary for your first bit of international commentary is again another remarkable sort of historical moment in the global game when ireland knock off pakistan on st patrick's day which we talked quite a bit about on on calling the shots earlier in the year but uh, again that idea you right place right time you were there and suddenly you're broadcasting to the world and you're the commentary which uh, narrates uh, this piece of history for ireland yeah, I wasn't meant to be commentating and I didn't have a commentary team with me yeah. either because I was just the reporter doing updates because you expect Pakistan are going to beat Ireland. Sure, so we'd yeah. sent the commentary team with, in, India played Bangladesh, didn't they, on the same day, yeah. which was yep. also an upset. Yep. So they bounced from India being beaten by Bangladesh to suddenly, oh, hang on, the cricket's getting a little bit interesting over at Sabina Park. And I remember Peter Baxter, who was the TMS producer at the time, coordinated that World Cup, getting the message through saying we're going to have to come to you for commentary. Like, are you okay to hold? Can, can you find someone to sit with you? And so I head down into the press box and I'm hauling up any Irish journalist who is island journalist who's prepared to come up and sit with me. So John Kenny came up and sat with me in the, in the box. Now, did Emmett Reardon come up as well, I think? But um, yeah, somehow then, yeah, being thrust from the reporter literally expecting to do match updates to suddenly Arlo White's throwing across to me to just hold hold the airwaves hold tms until the conclusion of the game wow and so somehow i i I did i mean i'd been commentating on county cricket before then already but that was the first time i actually was speaking commentary doing commentary on an international and there's a tragic postscript to that Mm. the the death of bob warmer i mean you were the last person to speak to bob warmer uh, in an official in an official capacity on you know an interview i mean not 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 privately but publicly uh, before he passed away that night that must have been quite affecting for you sort of having been right there on the scene a joyous moment followed by such a tragic one yeah and the crazy thing it was all such a juxtaposition so i interviewed bob just after the press conference and my key question to him then because again I I was doing that interview with my Asian network hat on so for the Asian audience Pakistan had just been knocked out of the World Cup this is major news and you know Bob what's what's this for your career and your future you know are are you resigning what's what's going to happen and I remember running back up to the commentary box you know feeling quite sort of pleased with myself because I'd you know Bob had all but told me that he was going to resign from his position but he just kept saying you know I'll I'll sleep on it but I'll sleep on it Mm. And I then followed the island team to Ocho Rios on the northern side of the, of the island because uh, 
because they were the story. They just won and they're about to go and have the most almighty St. Patrick's Day party with all their supporters. <laughs> so I duly did join in on their most almighty St. Patrick's Day party with all their supporters <laughs> and got all this fabulous audio of them around the swimming pool, chucking people in the swimming pool. A really lovely interview with Owen Morgan and his dad, actually, because Owen oh, was yeah, in course, that yeah. island side and talked to him about his ambitions of playing for England, funnily enough. And went to bed at about five in the morning and then was sitting in the lobby of the hotel getting ready to go on TMS that morning with all this great all singing, all dancing audio. And that's when I got a tip off that Bob had been found unconscious in his hotel room and had been taken to hospital. And that was all I got at that stage. And I, I immediately had a sort of sinking feeling like a sort of sinister feeling about it only because at the time of waiting to go on air myself we'd just been hearing you know having worked at the Asian Network sort of usual reports of stones being thrown at the players houses of death threats that have been leveled against Inzaman the captain and and Bob Warmer's coach and you know that was not it was not unusual to hear that from the subcontinental fans reaction to crashing out of a world cup suddenly that coupled with that I, whatever it was it I had a sinister it made me feel like yeah I got a sinister feeling about it and ultimately so broke broke the news called into the BBC got in a car to get back to Kingston Jamaica and it was actually while we were in the car driving back that yeah I got another call to come through to say that that Bob had then died and and that then just set off, you know, that, that incredible chain of events of uh, incredibly graphic descriptions from Pakistan's media manager of the way Bob had been found in his hotel room, the Prime Minister of Jamaica arriving at the hotel to condole the players, which was just the most crazy media scrum I've ever seen. Inzamam then announcing his retirements from One Day Internationals, which just seemed the most incongruous of press conferences to call when your coach has just died. The police then announcing that his death was being treated as suspicious. That then turned into the sort of bombshell press conference when they announced that they believed he'd been strangled and it was murder. And that then, Jeff, is when you really work out and, and feel the size of the BBC because I had like one little Nokia mobile phone and the battery just boom, because no sooner had I finished one two-way the phone would ring again and it'd be another radio station to another two-way and then the phone would ring, ring again and it would be the voicemail with the five messages that had come in while I'd been doing my previous two-way mm. and this 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 was it was constant and that, that went on for days it was a re- it was an extraordinary extraordinary time, and one one which actually when I look back, it was an awful thing to have to report on because nobody goes to a World Cup to cover cricket and end up reporting on the death of someone you know. And we all knew Bob because he was that kind of yeah. man. He made you he was happy to chat with anybody. He he was he was affable Bob. For for me, it it had an impact on my my career because it. It was a yeah, story of, of immense gravitas and, and, and seriousness. It was, it was a hard news story that I reported on. And as far as my career, you know, as my work went, I reported on it successfully. You know, I 
Mm. I fed fed the beast that was the BBC and managed to not get kind of drawn into you know the rumours that were swirling and that you know, whole thing of like sticking to the facts, attributing all comments, don't be swayed by rumour. And um, yeah, when I think I was viewed differently by the BBC, it was as if I'd sort of grown up very quickly in the space of of that time at the World Cup. I walked back into the sports room of the BBC and 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 got applauded. You know, which completely took me mm. aback, but it it showed, I guess the yeah the the, the I'd shown I I could deliver on on a hard news story such as that. And but it's a really bizarre position to be in to be to have kind of personal success reliant on someone else's personal tragedy. You know, it's such a it's well, such absolutely. a strange absolutely. incongruous yeah. way yeah. to to exist. All you can do as a journalist is report the stories that yeah, are in front right. of you, and yeah. you're a journalist, and and that's the story, and and you respond. Mm accordingly um the one thing about bob bob warmer's death actually was i did an anniversary program about 10 years on yeah and went to meet his son dale who i'd actually met in 2005 when i was my first ever england tour was in pakistan when bob was coach and um mm -hmm. actually jill and the boys had, had come out so i'd have met him very very briefly and he wouldn't have remembered however you know i was quite apprehensive about going to meet dale because you know yeah going to talk to someone about events that happened 10 years earlier and it's his father and, and sort of dragging up everything again and um, how controversial it, it was and the, the police investigation you know I thought this can be quite painful for him I, I, I didn't really know what to expect and actually what I found was one of the first stories Dale told us because Dale's now got children of his own and his young son they had like a show and tell at school and Dale had kept all of the cuttings, the newspaper cuttings from that time. And he was more than happy and quite sort of pleased and jovial about showing us the fact that his son went into school with the show and tell. His show and tell was, can you believe that my granddad died in oh, at the gosh. middle of the Cricket World Cup and they thought he was murdered? Oh. And look at all of this. And so, you know, it, it was sort of Dale really acknowledged that it was an extraordinary, extraordinary world story. Mm. And sort of embraced that in a, in a sense to kind of own the story and not rather than, you know, I didn't come across a son who was sort of harrowed by the whole experience. And it must have been, you know, I can't even imagine how harrowing yeah. it was at the time. But a, a decade on, yeah, almost, it's not to say, I'm so proud of the story, but I mean, certainly proud of the dad and what he'd achieved, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, kind of owning it and we're saying yeah this is a this is a massive part of our family history mm -hmm. so why wouldn't we yeah. talk about it accepting it's, the strangeness it was extraordinary of it. Like, it, you, you can't yeah, fight yeah, it at that it point. was an extraordinary story yeah the 2007 world cup uh and let's call it the professional success of that for you and how it advances your career olympic games follow wimbledon french open pretty much any tournament that was going in cricket Alison Mitchell is there, you're working with TMS, you're everywhere, you're omnipresent. I was interested about your process, your preparation process, because when you're covering, you mentioned before being an expert on a lot of different things. Well, that's what you convey when you're doing tennis or when you're doing gymnastics at the Olympic Games, as you've done mm -hmm. a number of times now, that you need to drop into these sports, even though cricket's your main bag, obviously. You drop into these sports and you become the authoritative voice uh, on them at the, the crucial time in, in their, I guess, their four-year cycle. But that must come down to, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen the notes you take. It comes back to your journalistic training and the fact that you are first and foremost a, a journalist and a broadcaster and you prepare accordingly 
fake it till you make it. Is that <laughs> no. On the contrary, really. I, yeah. it, was, it was more that, I mean, you, you can't yeah. fake that kind of level of knowledge. It's, you, you need to sort of be on your game. Yeah, I think it's a bit like cramming for an exam. Right. Because you go into an event and let's take artistic gymnastics, which became my Olympic sports, but only by, by dint of arriving in Beijing for the Olympics. And my job there was to do the five live you know, roundups to give the roundups on all the British medal success. The editor rings me and says, we've got a Brit in the final of the pommel horse. We don't have a gymnastics reporter. Do you think you could get down there? And I'm like, pommel horse. <laughs> That's where you punch your <laughs> no, horse, I, I'd right? Actually, <laughs> I know. I was like, is not running in the 12.15 at Raisin? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> did I play cover drive? Yeah. Yeah. I like, fortunately, like I'd watched gymnastics quite a lot as a, as a kid. It wouldn't, you know, as much as when it's on, the world champs are on the telly and the Olympics are on, I'd always been drawn into it and quite enjoyed it. But, you know, there's no way I could tell you what the pertinent things to look out for in a pommel horse routine were. <laughs> I couldn't even <laughs> told you, you know, how long a pommel horse routine was meant to be. But for that, just as an example, like for Olympics, the BBC produces what they call the Olympics Bible. And there's people whose full-time job it is throughout the year is to compile like a duffer's guide to the Olympics. Oh, wow. So I'd love that. It's an amazing document. I basically went into the broadcast centre, find the Bible. It's like, as, you know, it's, it's as big as a phone book. It's like right. a massive phone directory. Look up like gymnastics, chapter five. Okay, photocopy <laughs> chapter five, tuck it under my arm, read it whilst I'm on the train heading across the broadcast centre. Find Mitch Fenner, the late Mitch Fenner now, who's the, who was the BBC's TV gymnastics commentator, who also happened to be a cricket fan. So that was in my favour. So he'd heard me on TMS. He, I was said, Mitch, tell me everything I need to know without overcomplicating it. Give me the basics of a pommel horse routine. And Mitch then was brilliant. And I just got enough terminology to satisfy those people who would have been listening who do know gymnastics mm. and yet at the same time not bamboozling probably the majority of the audience mm. who equally would not know one end of a pommel horse from the other. So and I, and I think I'll take that approach. Uh, like the two, the two <laughs> ends. Well, so, yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> Good knowledge, Jeff. <laughs> um, so I think I take that approach to quite a lot of those, if you like, more niche sports that aren't mainstream is, just, is the balance between educating people who don't know much about it yet not talking down to those mm. who do and so I think gymnastics was a really good way sort of in to that anyway so I went went on radio and Lewis Smith was the gymnast in question on the pommel horse and yeah managed to describe a pommel horse routine and he won a medal and that was sort of Great Britain on the, this amazing then gymnastics pathway that I was fortunate to be on right the way through until Rio 2016. So I saw them through to London, was then doing European and World Championships every time they came along. And, and so actually by, yeah, by doing it, I really did get a really strong grasp on gymnastics. But yeah, it, it's just do dossing up. So each time before a World Champs, you sort of go back to like, right, where's my gymnastics notes? Get, get it all out, mm. fill your head with gymnastics. And then when, you're when the championship is over, sort of empty your head of gymnastics because then actually Wimbledon is around the corner. Right. So then it's like get your head into tennis, fill your head with tennis for the fortnight that you're doing that. And then sort of empty your head of tennis because now I'm back into the cricket season. So it's all about cricket again for the next few months. And that's, I think I used to cram for exams definitely when I was at school. And I think I used the same thing to a large degree. <laughs> so it's so, so much sport. Like it's so hard to keep across everything all of the time. There's a lot of other things going on in life as well as sport. Yeah, I mean, so for me, yeah, it is about, yeah. You literally can't even watch all of the cricket, you know, even just one sport. You can't, <laughs> yeah. you can't actually engage with it all in a meaningful way. But the point that you spoke about of being 
thrown on air to do that ball-by-ball commentary of, of the Ireland game. What's the process from there to when you break through to be doing ball-by-ball commentary on international cricket on a regular basis? Well, the first international TMS commentary was the T20 World Cup later that year, the inaugural one in South oh, Africa. Yes. So after, so the World Cup was March time. So I came back and was then doing yeah, my usual sort of summer of county cricket. So continued to commentate on T20 and, and, and one day cricket throughout the county season. And then, yeah, got my opportunity at that World Cup. And then from then we flew direct from South Africa, I remember, to Sri Lanka in England's one day tour. So I commentated on one day as, as well for the first time that year. And... But then uh, there was such a, a sort of hierarchy, if you like, and, you know, TMS was quite sort of fixed with its commentators it had at home. Um, CMJ was, was still around and, uh, and at his peak. Um, Ag is obviously that always been overseas commentator. You've got blowers, you know, so the opportunity, you know, was pretty hard to come by. Tours, there was always more opportunity because not everyone toured all of the time. Plus, it, it, it did feel like there was a hierarchy as if, yeah, you started your commentary away from home and then eventually you would earn your, your spot to be able to do a home commentary. And I knew that when it came to test matches, again, the sort of your entry level test match, I think things are sort of a bit different now, but it would be, you know, you would have to earn your stripes in a way. And the first tests I was actually slated to commentate on were in 2010 in Bangladesh. And so again, it's, yeah, the Bangladesh away tour is kind of the lowest profile of yes, any of the, the least popular you might do. The least in demand from the <laughs> well, established well, commentators. Yeah. 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 Um, so that, that would have been where I would have cut my teeth and done my first test match commentary, bar the fact that I had a really nasty bout of ophthalmic shingles um, in that January, February, and was absolutely wiped out. Thought that I wasn't actually, I was worried about my sight at one stage. I've still got some scars on my cornea, but thankfully didn't actually affect my sight long term. Um, but I wasn't deemed that I'd recovered well enough to be able to fly out to Bangladesh in the March. And I was gutted mm. because I then looked at the diary ahead and I can't remember who, which team would have been over that summer, 2010. But then you looked at 2010-11 away was an Ashes tour. I was like, mm. well, I'm not going to commentate on an Ashes tour away. And then 2011 summer, whoever it was in India. England, in India. Yeah. So again, I was like, well, India's, you know, too high profile. So they won't give me an India tour in 2011. 20, I literally just counted on and on. And it was four years until I got the opportunity oh, wow. to then commentate on a test match, which was 2014 wow. against, in, again, once against India at home. But by then, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd won an award the year before, well, I was which, say, which, which helped the cause. Well, yeah, I did wonder that. So you look mm. back through your sort of CV and winning that you know, Sports Journalists Association big award, the, the Broadcaster yeah. of the Year in 2013, win 2014 for the year of 2013, having had that long line of sports you were covering in addition to cricket. Then you end up on TMS in 2014 mm. and, that, and that big sort of debut, you're the first woman apart from Donna Simmons, of course, the West Indian commentator, but the first English woman to do that job, which sets a bit of a trend in a way because you become the first woman to do one, two, three, four, a number of things in the, in the years since. But that felt big, that idea that there was a, mm. a sort of a homegrown BBC woman joining this male-heavy commentary team with a reputation of being, rightly or wrongly, uh, a, a boys' mm. club, historically, and then you walk in there, having, of course, worked overseas with TMS, but it's a little bit different when it's the home summer. Yeah, you see, I didn't feel that it was a big deal in 2014. As much as I said, yeah, I had to wait sort of four years for that particular opportunity of commentating on a test. Yep. But I think the point being that I had been with TMS for seven years already yeah, because yeah. I'd been doing T20s and ODIs, whether it was away from home or at home 
During the home summers, Adam Mountford had got me involved in 2008 as the roving reporter for TMS. So I'd actually been a voice in the team doing interviews and doing features within the commentary programme. So by the time I came to do ball by ball at a test match in 2014, I think the listeners were so used to my voice and me being a part of the programme anyway. And of course, they'd just listened to me doing ball by ball commentaries on England anyway. I don't think the listeners made a distinction really between you know, no one else is thinking what your what this particular commentator's career path is. No one else is plotting at home going, oh, hang on, have we heard her at a home test before? Or <laughs> which, you know, which team has she covered? And, mm. you know, it's just your, your part, you're a commentator commentating on the game. So the, the 2014 test match and doing tests for the first time. To me, that just felt like, well, I've sort of been, I've been doing this for, for ages anyway. I knew there was a significance to it. But the real, the real significant moment for me when I felt I broke through was 2007, right. doing an international, doing an England commentary mm. for the first time. Because that was me in the TMS box with Aggers, with Jeffrey Boycott, with Ian Chappell, commentating on a World Cup. And so that for me was, was the significant moment, yeah. particularly because, I mean, the backdrop kind of socially, culturally at that point was, you know, women in commentary boxes were just non-existent. Jackie Oatley had made her debut as the Match of the Day commentator in the April. And Jackie was a really good friend of mine. I'd sort of lived that experience with her a little bit behind the scenes. And it was not a good experience for her. her. Her actual commentary, like, you know, great. She knows her football inside out. But behind the scenes... She was trolled. She was a subject of phone-ins. Should women be allowed to commentate? Like, even some football managers came out with really strong anti-women opinions. And so that was the backdrop to which I made my TMS debut proper. And that was also the reason why the BBC, sort of in conjunction with me, because I also believed it was the right way to go, if I wanted to actually make a success of it and and be in this for the long game, which I wanted to be, Mm. I wanted to not just be a female who commentated a few games and then drifted away. I wanted to be in this. And I felt, and we felt, the best, best way of doing it was just for me to do it, head down and do it. So no announcement was made to say, you know, to put me front and centre or to say, Alison's joining the team or... Alison's the first woman since Donna Simmons to be on TMS. Nothing. We just did it. And, and again, because of all the reporting I'd done for the Beeb already, again, some people didn't particularly notice. You know, I'd already commentated on county games and county finals and that sort of thing. Right. So, again, it wasn't to the regular listener. I wasn't a huge change. I was, you know, some people might have noticed, but we didn't make a big deal out of it. Interesting. Um, I mean, I sometimes now... I look back and think, well, would I have liked to have made more of a big deal out of it? Because perhaps I could have used my platform in a in a bigger way if I felt I could have been sort of loud and proud about it. But I, I think you do look back and say, at that moment, with the cultural background that it, the, where we were in society at that time, I know there's still issues now, but where it was at that time, if we had tried to be sort of loud and proud about it, might well have got shot down in a way that would have been detrimental. So, yeah, the plan was just get your feet under the table and just do it. And then over time, and the plan was, you know, I just wanted to make it normal to hear a woman's voice on commentary without making a fuss about it. And then I hope that then that would mean that whoever then comes in next 
doesn't have to feel like I did the first time I did it, that I was kind of commentating, if you like, on behalf of womankind. Yeah. That, you know, if mm. I stuffed up and got a fielding position wrong even or mispronounced a player's name, that someone would be jumping in with a column somewhere. Yeah. And it wouldn't just have been Alison Mitchell's a poor commentator. It would have been women... Yeah. Our poor cricket commentators. Oh, what I mean, are they well, doing? We, we, we the still air, see you know? it. There's one, there's one columnist it. who routinely shit cans women. You know, and it, 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 it's yeah. not it's not it coincidental. Got, mm, it hasn't gone away. <laughs> it hasn't gone away. But I'd like to think that at least from from all the years that I was doing, when I was the only female on all these cricket tours, that you know now that we've got a brilliant cohort mm. around the world, yeah. that they haven't quite felt. I know everyone does feel a certain pressure because we're still a tiny number, comparatively speaking, still a minority. But I hope that yeah they've never felt quite the same in terms of like doing it literally on their own. Yeah, I mean the the opposition hasn't gone away, but you know in a way it's been rendered irrelevant because there have been so many examples to the contrary. And I think that the the idea of just doing it is what has happened with the BBC. You know, in, particularly in those last six or seven years, where it my view on it is that. BBC radio commentary has been the nursery for women cricket commentators, you know, almost exclusively. Obviously, a, a couple of pioneers in South Africa, in, in Casnado and, and Natalie Germanos. Yeah, Natalie Germanos is sort of doing it, yeah, similar time that I was starting out, yeah. But in terms of, you know, what's happening in the UK, what's uh, spilled over to Australia and so on, so much of it was about, was about Adam Mountford at TMS. Yeah bringing these commentators through and and just making it normal you know just just making it that this is now how it is you know it's not going to be unusual to have two or three different women's voices on a men's cricket match that's just going to depend on the roster and that will just be how it is would you say the bbc commentary in the same way yeah adam's had amazing vision and and just belief in people um, and when I started out, I mean, certainly nobody was looking for female commentators uh, in that time in the mid-2000s. But he very much you know, absolutely listened to me when I first came on the scene and was saying, this is something I want to do. And there was always a sense to me that as a female, you had to prove your sports knowledge in a way that with men, it was assumed that you just understood cricket because mm. mm. you're a man. And actually that for me was where my dissertation came in because I had 10,000 words which proved I understood the intricacies and nuances of, of cricket. But yeah, Adam from just listening to, to my reports and, and then me absolutely saying, yes, I, I want to commentate, so something I actively want to do. He then supported it and that was the crucial thing. And yeah, and he's absolutely been at the forefront of, of yes, women commentators, also pushing the BBC's coverage of women's cricket. And then that in turn has elevated the profile of the women's game to the extent that... And I, I remember really clearly being at the 2009 Women's World Cup, and that was the first time I worked with um, the ABC on radio commentary and worked with Mel Jones as well. We commentated on the Women's World Cup final together. And looking at that group of players, that generation, which included Isha Gua and Ebony Rainford-Brent, and thinking the profile that the women's game is getting now and where we're going to take it and where it will be by the time these players retire will be such that they will have the credibility and profile as players to step into media careers in a way that those of the generations before just didn't. And I think that's, that's absolutely happened. And, and you know, certainly the, the drive to raise the profile of the game comes from, yeah, it's come from the BBC 
um, it's come from that the ICC and the investment they've put in, in in more recent years and you know the 2013 Women's World Cup in India yep. was a, a landmark one for me in terms of the dedicated television coverage um, to you know a certain number of women's matches which as we know four years on from that in 2017 the ICC ended up broadcasting in one form or other every single game making it visible so that's I think that that combined it's one one side of it is is investment in the female broadcasters and it coupled with the investment in the women's game so that you've actually got known names and personalities who come out of the game who can then step into a commentary box when we were making calling the shots that 2017 women's world cup was a real landmark moment for a number of women broadcasters and we told that story on the final episode which you know your story was was chief amongst those and you were the narrator of that World Cup in the way that Mark Nicholas was the narrator of the 2005 Ashes. I mean, your defining piece of commentary from the final wicket on Test Match Special continues to be the holding music on Five Live Sports <laughs> Extra all day long when there's no event being played. And then you go from that straight down to the ground to do the presentation and essentially tell the world that England are, are world champions. It's a really wonderful moment. And we've you know, there's no disputing that. You've almost addressed that there. And that might have been expected, a woman fronting the coverage of the Women's World Cup. What wasn't expected was you, later that year, going to Australia for BT and, and doing that job for the 17-18 Ashes. But in 2018, the year after that, Channel 7 win the rights to be the free-to-air television broadcaster for Australian men's cricket. And there you are, front and centre of that as well. That would have been simply inconceivable a couple of years earlier when there was no female presence on, on Channel 9's coverage at that stage anyway. And here you are, an English woman doing this sort of, the job that, well, I mean, the job that Richie Benno had done until a few years earlier. It, it's quite a remarkable arc to go from doing what you were doing to where you ended up in Australia. Yeah, it's funny because I, I don't think I often take enough time to actually maybe sit back and, and actually think, you know, what it, what it is that, that I'm doing. Yeah. It's, it's just all, it's, it's all cricket and it all feels sort of natural and I've done this so I'll then do that. And, and I just know cricket and I know broadcasting and, and this is what I do and I want to be working at the top and therefore I work at the top without really necessarily always thinking what's gone before and therefore thinking you know, there could be a barrier to that for me it I, I try not to see barriers or or erect barriers and I, I that's taking me back to actually a, a, a lad I met through visually impaired cricket in Melbourne who once said to me that there are three types of barriers there are barriers that there are there are real barriers but there are barriers that others place in front of us and there are barriers that you place in front of yourself and and sort of having a Sometimes if you think too hard about something, you would end up placing your own barrier in front of it to think, well, this is an, an impossible you know, thing to attain. Like, why, why would Australian cricket look for a you know, female commentator? But for me, I was, I was just a commentator on, on cricket who felt as if, yeah, worked around the world. And yeah, here's, here's a bit of an opening, a, a different broadcaster. I've done, done the ashes for, for BT Sport. And, and actually, that was where Dave Barham, who was setting up the Channel 7 commentary team to start with, had heard me in the in-stadium earpiece. Because, of oh, course, right. the Ashes yeah, was yeah. Being, being back to the UK. So my commentary there wasn't being heard by the Australian audience. But people were in the stands were actually listening um, on the in-ear stadium commentary. And, he, and he'd known my voice through radio and, and ABC. But, um, yeah, actually, the, the BT Sport commentary, someone... Someone did mention to me after I got back, um, who works within the industry, did say, "Oh, well, you know, re- really well done on the on the BT Sport job." You know, we thought we thought it was quite a risk at the time. 
you know they're like you know you did you did well and I, I was actually quite taken aback because to me it wasn't a risk <laughs> to me I, I'd sort of been waiting for this opportunity for a decade and, and actually I said to him well you know in in that there was a moment at the start of the broadcast where BT Sport got us all lined up around the the desk all the commentators and you know standing alongside Ricky Ponting and Adam Gilchrist and Damon Fleming and Michael Vaughan and Graham Swan and the, the whole team's there, Jeffrey Boycott. And we're about to go live. And I did then, talking about taking a moment, I did then take a moment and just looked around the Gabba. And I honestly never felt as calm before starting a broadcast. And you know, it's, it feel, it's a bit indulgent to say, but I, I just took a, allowed myself to take a moment and go, yeah, this is where I feel I belong. And yeah, I think I'll really keep that with me because I loved I loved working with that team. It was a terrible Ashes series for England. Mm. I mean, the, anyone who stayed up through the night in England, good luck watching that because England were getting trounced. But um, I, I absolutely loved working with that team. And as I said, it, it did then set me up, you know, working alongside Ricky Ponting in that commentary box. We got a really great rapport really quickly. And I think that's carried on into the, the seven commentary box as well. And that feeling is there's nothing more valuable than that. You know, we all spend so much of our lives worrying, uh, having all this anxiety about whether we can do things. But that feeling when you know, I've got this, like I've done the work. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not worried about whether I can pull this off. I've got it. Yeah, it's so nice to know that you had that feeling then. Yeah. Because it doesn't actually happen that often because I think we're all guilty of, you know, beating ourselves up a lot about the am, am I enough? Am I good enough? You know, that, there's always sort of some level of anxiety. Like every, you know, every game I go into, it's still right, you know, I've got to do the prep, got to make sure I'm on top of everything. Like I don't want to sit behind the, the mic and then be, you know, thrown off by a player who's got a niggle that I didn't know about before I sat down or, you know, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself to know more than the audience is going to know. And and that can be that can be a bit all consuming at times. Um, so yeah, when you when you have moments where you're like, yep, yeah, no, I'm, you know, and I would have got largely that feeling of calmness because I because I was prepared. But yeah, that sense of yeah, okay, we're here. This is going to be good. It's a nice feeling. Ali Mitchell, I think that's a, a lovely place to leave it. As we said off the top, it's been uh, a long time uh, in the make speaking to you and sitting <laughs> down and, and, having, so and having this conversation. <laughs> Not that we don't spend plenty of time together socially, but as far as actually finding time to do this particular interview. And uh, thank you for being uh, so forthright and uh, and so thorough in, in telling us about your extraordinary life in cricket. Well, you guys are, are awesome. Love, love what you do on on this podcast but generally around the traps as well because you know traveling around the world like we all need our friends and we're you know a bit of a disparate bunch sometimes (laughs) traveling around living out (laughs) of suitcases so yeah friends are important and you guys are tops thanks ellie hi i'm isha gua and you're listening to the final word with adam collins and jeff levin it is the final word adam collins and jeff lemon saying goodbye for another week thanking alison mitchell for making time for us one of the busiest and hardest working people in the industry in sport full stop really uh, the amount of miles she's done on the motorway this year and indeed the number of nights she spent in different hotel rooms through lockdown and, and all the rest it's kind of what she does every year really uh, working both sides of the uh, cricketing summer and, and so on so uh, yeah to pin her down for an hour was 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 good fun and hearing about her tale and I think sometimes I when I think about Alison I see her current role fronting a number of television broadcasts and all over radio and so on, you kind of forget that she really did the yards. I mean, it's not as though she was plucked from obscurity. Like, she was a a day-to-day working reporter for years and years and years and earned her opportunities that she has today. Yeah, I mean, you're you're looking at 20 years' worth of 
graft to yeah. get in, to the position that she's in uh, and, you know, it can be easy to forget that or, or not see that from the outside, you know, you just see people pop up on television who weren't there before and you think, well, where did they get plucked from? But it's it's absolutely not the case. And there is literally nobody in this entire line of work who's earned their opportunities more than her. Yeah, so much respect for Ali. Thanks again. Ali's also at Derbyshire at the moment uh, covering these games between England and the West Indies. We'll deal with them on next week's show. We'll also be able to talk about the New Zealand games against Australia. So, Jeff, you'll be at there at AB Field, aren't they? Yes, we are at Allen Borderfield for the whole lot, um, doing all of the distancing and COVID precautionary kind of stuff that is going to be the norm for uh, quite a long time, I imagine, from here on out, which is, you know, it'll it'll be frustrating. There, It'll make things a lot harder in terms of interviews and field access and all of the rest of it. Everything has to be much more intensely regulated. But the main thing is that the game is on. The games will be on the, the television. Uh, Channel 7 have not spat the dummy sufficiently to not broadcast the women's series, but anything after that is um, still liable for a dummy spit. We still don't have a schedule for the rest of the summer because that's all still being argued out. Yeah, hopefully by next week we'll have a schedule. We'll also talk about the final of the Bob Willis Trophy. I'm commentating that uh, on on the Sky production for the next five days. Really looking forward to being back at Lord. So we'll have plenty to, to come to uh, this time next week. Between times, we'll be back with story time on the weekend as we dig back through the history of our great game. If you're inclined to send us a nerd pledge and be part of that, do it at patreon.com forward slash the final word. Thank you to Seabus Super for being there for us for a long time. Uh, we're ever so grateful for underpinning the work that we're doing week in, week out, as we are to the Sat Phone Shop and the Zolio. You can learn all about that in the show notes. Uh, we put the show on each week in conjunction with Bad Producer Productions to Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards, who run the show there, and Dave Collins, who edits us expertly. I, I listened back to Storytime last week, Jeff, which sometimes I'm reluctant to do. I know that listening back to your own work, it, you know, it can be a bit of a... It's not always something that you, that you want to do, but I did listen through mm. last week, and I know that we had about 75 false starts last week on Storytime. For mm-hmm. whatever reason, we were both tired, and the show, um, as fun as it was to record, it, it did take some... You would never know it, because Dave Collins is a superb editor, and he makes things stitched together so beautifully. So thank you, DC. And last but not least, everybody who listens in, who reviews and rates us on iTunes and helps us stay towards the pointy end of the charts, uh, your patronage and your listenership is uh, gratefully received. So I think that's probably where we should leave it. Jeff, anything else that I've missed along the way? I have nothing left to give. I love you all. <laughs> and I love you all too. Until next time. Bye bye. I had to go about it, write it out.